Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 as we continue to work our way through this gospel. As you're turning there, I remind you that last week we began this chapter and we saw a determined and settled opposition to Jesus from the scribes and the Pharisees together with the Herodians who have moved beyond suspicions and questions to accusations in an effort to destroy him. But then we also saw Jesus as he withdrew from those opposed to him and withdrew from the press of the crowds and called his disciples up to the mountain where he appointed 12 apostles to be with him and to extend his ministry by preaching and exercising authority in his name. Now, as we move to the second half of this chapter, we'll continue to see this clear dividing line between those who oppose Jesus and those who are with Jesus. We want to pick up our reading with verse 20. So if you would join me as we read God's word from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered him, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. God, we thank you for this portion of your word. We pray that you would use it in our hearts for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Over the course of the 1980s, members of the Merced Community Medical Clinic in California had a long relationship with Fao Yang and now Kao Li as they tried to treat severe epilepsy in their little daughter Leah. The Lees were refugees from Laos, members of the Hmong ethnic group. The staff of the Merced Clinic were members of the American scientific medical community. And despite the fact that both groups cared deeply for little Leah, her condition worsened and care faltered 
as distrust between her parents and the medical community deepened. Now, certainly the language barrier was an issue. But more importantly, cultural blindness on both sides made logical discussion futile. The Hmong believed that you have a finite blood supply. But every time they brought their daughter to the hospital, they would draw blood. And they believed they were depleting her life. The Hmong put priority on the way treatment affects the spirit more so than the body. And so they were more concerned with the behavioral side effects of medication than they were with the epilepsy itself. But of course, the doctors also had cultural blindness. They cut ritual bands from Leah's wrists that the Hmong believe offered protection. During a seizure, they would strap Leah to a bed while the parents believed that bodily contact with them would offer the best care during a seizure. And so as the condition worsened, the parents believed Western medicine was harming their child, while the doctors believed that the parents' failure to give medication was harming Leah. And no amount of logical discussion could bridge these barriers, which led to a greater and greater breakdown. But these difficulties arose because of language and cultural barriers. If you add spiritual blindness, we are up against an even greater barrier against which logical discussion will prove futile. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says that the wisdom of God revealed by the Spirit of God cannot be understood by the wisdom of this age. And that is the point of the second half of Mark chapter 3. That those opposed to Jesus will not understand him and cannot understand him. For they have rejected the Spirit of God and the will of God. You reject the Spirit of God and the will of God. You cannot understand Jesus and will not receive the blessings of the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes this point clear by responding to two parties who oppose him, issuing warnings to those who oppose him, and then describing the blessings of those who follow him. So let's look at each of those, but we'll start with the two parties who oppose Jesus in verses 20 to 27. In today's reflection in your bulletin, I included some of C.S. Lewis's most famous words. In Mere Christianity, Lewis argues that assuming the Gospels are historically trustworthy, and Lewis gives many reasons for why they are, there are only three options for how to think about and respond to Jesus. We can believe that he is a madman whose claims should be ignored, We can believe that he is an evil man using demonic power to deceive who should be silenced. Or we can believe that he is who he says he is, the Lord, God, and we can worship him. And Lewis's words perfectly summarize verses 20 to 27 in our text this morning. Because in verses 20 to 21, we find that the crowds have again so zealously pursued Jesus that now he can't even eat dinner in his own home. And hearing this report, Jesus' family members come to get him by force, if necessary, to save him and them from further embarrassment. And you can imagine their conversation. You know, it's one thing to proclaim the kingdom of God. We're fine, Jesus, when you do that. But things have gotten totally out of hand. The authorities are calling him out. He can't even eat dinner because the crowds are pursuing him so strongly. And that is not normal or reasonable. So things must have gone to Jesus' head. 
And you can sort of imagine the family coming around Jesus and patronizingly say, okay, that's enough, Jesus. Time to come home now. Because as we read in John 7, 5, at this point, his brothers did not believe in him. And so Jesus' family takes door number one, believing that Jesus is out of his mind. Around the same time, perhaps even while Jesus' family is on their way to get him, the Jerusalem leaders send an official delegation to Capernaum to announce their official position. And you can sort of imagine the Jerusalem press secretary coming to Capernaum and uh, offering a media briefing on their official position. The authorities can't deny Jesus' works. No one had ever seen power like this before. But they can try to discredit Jesus' works. Such power can have multiple sources, they say. And if Jesus is going to deny our traditions and deny our righteousness, he must be from hell rather than from heaven. And they argue that he must be possessed by Beelzebul, a name that refers to the prince of demons. And so their argument is that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And so the authorities take door number two, concluding that Jesus is evil, acting under demonic power to deceive, and should be silenced. But Jesus responds in verses 23 to 27, destroying the logic of this conclusion. Demons are being cast out. That much is clear. But Jesus says, you're you're saying that I am doing that by the power of Satan? But we know that a house that is divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against his own forces, then his reign is coming to an end. He's destroying himself. And while that might be great news, if true, logically, it makes no sense at all. But there is another option. The question is, who else has the power to cast out Satan? If Satan has not risen up against himself... The only other conclusion, and the much better conclusion, is that the Lord himself has arrived to bind the strong man and plunder his house. In fact, this is exactly what the Lord had promised that he would do. Back in Isaiah 49.24, the Lord promised Israel, Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or can the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children and then all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. You see, the Old Testament had already answered this dilemma. And you see Jesus' logic. He is not a good teacher only, for that contradicts his claims. He is not a madman, for his words are rational, clear, and in perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is not evil, for that would imply that Satan has turned on himself and is destroying himself. No, he is who he said he is. He is doing just what he said he would do. He is the Lord, your Redeemer. So this is Jesus' response to these two parties who would oppose him. But next, Jesus goes on to issue warnings to both of these parties. And I want us to consider those warnings next. 
Jesus issues his first warning to the religious authorities in verses 29 and 30. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, Mark goes on to explain that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit here comes because the authorities were witnessing the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, but saying that it was the work of demons. Now, this here is Jesus discussing this infamous unforgivable sin that has been the subject of much discussion and concern, and so we should take a minute to make sure we have a clear understanding of it. So first we should ask, well, what exactly is this unforgivable sin? And Mark makes it clear that it is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit and attributing the Holy Spirit's work to that of the devil instead. And it makes perfect sense that this sin would not be forgiven, not because it is some ill-fated action that might accidentally sink us forever, but because the Holy Spirit is the one who changes our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us and brings us to repentance. And if we reject the Spirit is evil, how will he bring us to repentance and faith? And apart from repentance of faith, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus' statement is only a logical one. Now we might say, well, hold on a second there. I thought God was absolutely sovereign. How can we talk about someone resisting the Holy Spirit? I think it's important to note that we're not talking about God's Spirit trying with all his might to convict us and we stubbornly holding God's power at bay. That's not what this passage is talking about. Rather, the situation is that in his mercy, God sends his Spirit with his word his Spirit-inspired Word, to enlighten our minds to the truth. And yet, in our sin, we persistently reject that Word, and we reject the work of His Spirit as evil. I think we get the perfect illustration of this in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen is there preaching before the Jerusalem council, and Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And you see what Stephen is saying. He's saying, your fathers were not just too stubborn for God's power. He's saying, God sent you his spirit-inspired word by his prophets again and again and again. But your fathers called them evil and shut them up in prison and killed them. And then you did the same to Jesus. And if that is your approach to God's word and God's spirit, then forgiveness of sins is not possible. This is the sin that Jesus is identifying, this persistent rejection of God's spirit, calling him evil, such that forgiveness of sins is not possible. Well, how should we think about this sin? How do we know if we have committed it or someone else has committed it? It's often been said that hardness of heart is the primary sign of this sin. So anyone worried that they might have committed it likely hasn't, for they demonstrate a softness of heart and a longing to come to Christ and walk with him. And that does not square with resisting the Holy Spirit. So we should say that this is no past act that disqualifies you despite your current desire to come to Jesus and see him. But 
This is a serious warning. Jesus is telling us that there is a sin so grievous that it leads to eternal consequences. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, Let us not forget that there is an eternal God, an eternal heaven, and an eternal hell. And let us recollect that sin is an infinite evil that needed an atonement of infinite value to deliver the believer from its consequences. And it entails an infinite loss on the unbeliever who rejects the remedy of it. So this is a serious warning. Now, we won't always know whether someone else has committed this sin. I don't think we can look and say, oh, yep, they're headed for fire. Nothing they can do. Because the purpose of Jesus' warning is not that we can look around and just determine who's committed this sin. The fact is there are many who reject Christ for many years, and yet the Lord renews them to repentance. But rather, the purpose of Jesus' warning here is for us to examine our hearts. The purpose of Jesus' warning is to be a flashing sign here in the church saying, Stop! Do you realize that hell forever stands as the just punishment for anyone who has heard the Word of God brought by the Spirit of God and persisted in rejecting it as evil? Do you realize that those who have been to church and heard the gospel are in particular danger of the sin? Do not go down this path. May we not leave the sanctuary this morning without knowing the consequences if we choose to persistently reject Him as evil in favor of what we believe is good. That is Jesus' warning to His people. Well, this is the first warning that Jesus gives, but he gives a second warning in verses 31 to 35. His family arrives on their mission to retrieve their out-of-his-mind son and brother. And the crowd say, hey, Jesus, your, your mom's here. Your brother's here. You see Jesus' response there in verse 33. He says, who are my mothers and brothers? Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. Now, some have said, well, that's kind of a harsh response, Jesus. But this is not a word of smackdown. I think this is said in the same tone as Jesus' words to his mother in the temple when he was 12. You remember how Mary comes and says, Jesus, we've been looking everywhere for you. And Jesus says, why were you looking everywhere for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? His words aren't rejecting his mother. It's reorienting to say my primary responsibility and calling is not to my earthly family, but to my heavenly father. And in the same way, I think he's saying here, my primary allegiance and responsibility are not to my earthly family, but to my heavenly family. And Jesus' words here are a warning because he's saying no natural relationship guarantees your spot in the kingdom of God. Being a child of Abraham, being Jesus' natural-born siblings, growing up in the church, having Christian parents, none of that is going to matter on the last day. No birth or association or proximity to Jesus gives you a ticket into the kingdom of heaven. No, Jesus says, the only thing that can give you hope of coming into the family of Jesus is to do the will of God. 
Well, what does it mean to do the will of God? Well, Jesus gave a direct answer to that question in John six twenty nine. The crowds had come to him and said, well, what should we do to do the works of God, to do the will of God? And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So doing the will of God starts by believing and trusting in Jesus whom God sent. But then out of that faith in Christ, James 1, 21 and 22 says that doing the will of God involves not being a hearer of the word only, but a doer of the word, putting away all sin and filthiness and receiving with meekness the implanted word of God. Maybe to sum this up, we could say doing the will of God is submission to God and to his word through faith in the one that he has sent. And apart from that submission of faith, no one can claim to be in Jesus' family. And so the warning here is beware what we assume. May we examine our hearts and respond in faith. These are Jesus' warnings. Warnings both to his family and to the leaders, and warnings to our hearts. But as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to conclude by looking at blessings which Jesus offers as well. And we start in verse 28, where Jesus offers his first blessing. Jesus makes this declaration, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Do you hear this categorical statement that Jesus makes? That for the one who comes to Christ, who does not persist in rejecting the Holy Spirit as evil, for that one, there is no sin that puts him beyond the mercy and forgiveness and welcome of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, I read the story of Stanley Stever. At age 17, Stever committed murder in Ohio. He was sentenced to prison and shortly after entering prison, he joined a neo-Nazi gang called the Aryan Brotherhood. But after a decade of his sentence, his gang leader became a Christian at a retreat for inmates. Stever said that a contagious change of heart and life were immediately evident in his former gang boss, And so Stever asked to attend a similar retreat. And there he gave his life to Christ. He described his experience like getting a heart transplant, finding hope that even my crimes can be wiped clean in the blood of the Lamb. And for the the last 23 years, Stever has dedicated his life to telling other inmates about the hope that their sins can be forgiven in Christ. I want you to think for just a minute about the range of crimes that were represented in those prison cells. And each of those sins is included in Jesus' statement. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. Well, how about 80 years of living a life of materialism and self-indulgence? How about the teen who hasn't wanted to miss out on any of the fun that everyone else is having in high school? How about the lying and slandering to get ahead in a cutthroat executive context? How about children who want their way and get angry at their parents and their siblings? We could go on. 
But all these too are included and all sins will be forgiven the children of man. I was struck this week as I read in my devotion Psalm 38.4 where the psalmist writes, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. You know, it is so easy for us to find ways at justifying ourselves and minimizing our sins or distracting ourselves from our sins or saying we're not doing anything too bad or I still believe in God or hiding our sins under a veneer of niceness. But Psalm 38.4 is the reality for every single one of us. Our sins are too heavy for us. Which is why Jesus' words here hit us square in the heart with unspeakable hope. Because while we are more sinful than we are so often willing to acknowledge, there is no threshold beyond which our sins are too great for the blood of Jesus. All sins will be forgiven the children of man who come to Christ in repentance and faith. And that is a deep, deep blessing. J.C. Ryle writes this. He said, These words may well fall lightly on the ears of many. But to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need for mercy, these words are sweet and precious. They are the crown and glory of the gospel. For the first thing they propose to man is free pardon, full forgiveness, complete remission, without money and without price, through this man, Jesus. For as Paul proclaims in Acts 13.39, by him, all that believe are justified from all things. This is Jesus' first blessing. But Jesus doesn't end there. He offers a second blessing in response to his family in verses 33 to 35, where he says that he who does the will of God will be his brothers and sisters and mothers. And I don't want us to miss the significance of that statement. Now, some of you might think, well, my brother or my sister is kind of a nuisance. They know better than anyone else how to push my buttons and tease me and make me mad. Maybe there's conflict or alienation in your family. But imagine what an offer like this would sound like to an orphan, to one who is alone without connection or hope in life. Because that is what Jesus sees when he looks at the crowds around him. He sees sheep without a shepherd, children without a father, men, women, and children without God and without hope in the world. And it is to them, it is to us, that Jesus offers adoption into his family as his brothers and sisters. And Jesus' offer here is a relationship that cannot be set aside One that emphasizes our relationship to Christ, but also our standing before God as our Abba, Father. We are invited into his presence, surrounded by his love. We have his his lap to run to in pain and in sorrow. We are no longer a slave, but a son. It means that as siblings, we are co-heirs with Christ. We are named right along together with Christ in his inheritance in glory. Jesus doesn't just give us a get-out-of-jail-free card to escape hell for a golden mansion. No, Jesus invites us into his family. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him and in the love of his Father and an inheritance in his kingdom forever. That is the blessing that Jesus offers to anyone 
who will do the will of God. When we come to the end of this passage this morning, it's a passage that issues strong warnings, but it also issues strong blessings for the one who will come to Christ. One commentator writes that this passage, that Jesus' words are calculated to disquiet the comfortable who presume that they are just fine, but to comfort the burdened who long for peace of conscience and reconciliation with God and hope for their lives. And that is what Jesus has come to offer to those who will receive him for who he is. Not a raving madman, not a possessed wicked man, not a good teacher to listen to from time to time, but the mighty one, God the Lord, who came to bind and plunder the strong man, to pour out his blood that his brothers and sisters and mothers might be forgiven in his name. So may we not oppose him, but may we come to him, trusting in him for our salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. How we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. How we thank you for the table that is before us, which assures us of the promises of the gospel. And how I pray that no one this morning would leave in persistent rejection of the Holy Spirit. May we come in repentance of faith and find life in your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.